Pushkin. It's been nearly four years since Drive By Truckers released their pissed off, politically charged album, American Band. That record was the Rebel Yell, full of songs that reflected life and injustice during the Trump era. And judging from their latest release, The Unraveling, it's clear the drive by truckers have moved from anger into a state of grief. Unraveling is the Drive-By Truckers' 12th album. The band's two lead vocalists, Mike Cooley and Patterson Hood, both grew up in rural Alabama. Patterson's dad, David Hood, was the basis for the Swampers, one of the most famous studio house bands of all time, who are officially known as the Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section. They backed artists like Aretha Franklin, the Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan, and Paul Simon. But Patterson explains to Bruce Hedlum in this interview why he never talked about his dad's job until he was in his 30s. Patterson and Mike also play songs from their new album, most of which are protest songs inspired by the current political climate and conversations they've had to have with their kids about it. And as you'll hear, they've had to rethink their live set lists after fans started waving the Confederate flags at a festival they were playing alongside one of their favorite rappers. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Mike Cooley and Patterson Hood in conversation with Bruce Hedlum. They start off by playing an acoustic version of 21st Century USA. The parking lot beyond Oasis 10 Down the street from the Mexican Restaurant beyond the auto zone and the place is hawking payday loans There's a Kmart and a KFC A fitness center and an Applebee's Wells Fargo and a Taco John's A good time bar to get your bad swerve on In the town that's named for razor blades American but Chinese made Folks working hard For shrinking pay 21st century USA Out on 90 We might see you pass We got coal And methane gas we got jobs where the work is hard and stores to max out your credit cards In a town that ain't nowhere near Just like every town everywhere Folks working hard for shrinking pay salvation I'll order it up on my phone with big brother watching me always why must I always feel so alone enough at best Women working just as hard for less We get together late at night at bars And bang each other like crashing cars Working hard but it don't seem enough Calloused hearts make even love seem tough Prescription pills to make the pain hurt less 
Till your calloused heart just needs a rest Look at your children and you hope and pray They can conjure up a better day No one remembers how it got that way First century USA Twenty first century USA Lovely. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we're here with Mike Cooley and Patterson Hood, who for more than 20 years have been the leaders and songwriters for Drive-By Truckers. Uh, songwriters doesn't seem to quite capture it, almost. You guys have been so prolific, and you write with such strong themes. Uh, it's it's easier almost to think of you as novelists with guitars, I think, because you've done so much work. Uh, tell me where this song came from. The song came from um, a uh, stopover on an off-ramp off I-90 outside of Gillette, Wyoming. And uh, I, don't, I don't write a lot on the road. I don't write a lot of songs on the road because it, 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 it tends to be hard with on a bus with, you know, 11 people and, and uh, all the loud noises and music playing and stuff. But, um, but we uh, were on our way from Sioux Falls, uh, South Dakota to Missoula and uh, taking the required, the legally required bus stop where the driver hopefully sleeps for a few hours. Yeah, those and, are pretty uh, good laws, actually. It's a good law. <laughs> and, uh, uh, we've seen the other side. Nice the <laughs> union yeah. Yeah, we've, we've, yeah, yeah. we've seen yeah, we've, the other side. We, yeah, we, we've seen not abiding by them. Yeah, mm-hmm. we, we had a driver one time go from Minneapolis to Seattle nonstop. Wow. And, uh, I don't. I don't even know if he peed. I mean, he just went, and uh, yeah. and it was a little terrifying. But uh, but so we were we were stopped at a Holiday Inn Express just on an off ramp. I mean, it could just as easily have been somewhere in Alabama or Arizona, other than how cold it was, and because uh, it was wintertime, it was January, and it was it was nice and cold, and we were hungry, and we were walking to, uh, going to walk to this, like, Mexican restaurant a couple blocks away. There was the only thing on that off-ramp that wasn't a chain, mm-hmm. and uh, it was like three stars on Yelp, you know, sold, <laughs> and uh <laughs> And uh, we met in the lobby, and we're walking. When I walked out of the door with, like, patches of snow and ice, you know, in the parking lot, our bus is parked under this giant billboard that said the Oasis Tanning Salon. And I don't know how that became a song, but by the time we got to the restaurant, I wrote the first verse on a napkin. And after I ate, I went back to the hotel room and uh, or motel room and, and wrote the rest of the song that afternoon. Mm-hmm. And that kind of opened the floodgates for the songs that I wrote on this album because I, I, up to that point, was having a real hard time wrapping my head around how I wanted to approach writing about this crazy time that we're all trying to live through right now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, your last album, uh, American Band, was also written about an earlier part of the crazier time. Right, was it? right. Back, um, in, back and, in the good old days when we thought it sucked. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, you know, parts of that album uh, seem to be written uh, more in sorrow than in anger. Um, you seem to have become a little easier with your anger in this one. It's a tough, tough album. It's, it's funny because I, I almost almost have taken the opposite Thought on it. I, I love hearing that. Hearing it. I love hearing how different people gauge it and react to mm-hmm. it. You know, because because from my point of view, I thought of the last record as more the angry one, and this is more just the sad one. It's just like now, now what? What do we do now? You know, mm-hmm. and uh, so so much of the so many of the songs I wrote on this record were directly inspired by conversations with my kids and uh, right. trying to raise your family. And you know, in all of this, and uh, and and you know, the questions they had about different things, you know, talking to you know, 
my kids about the lockdown drill they had in school, you know, mm-hmm. and and uh, and my son had all these questions about, you know, if if someone was going to take him away from his mommy and I and put him in a cage and a holding. I mean, he was literally he was worried about that, you know, mm-hmm. and and. You know, first I comforted him and told him that that wasn't going to happen, which led to the really uncomfortable, unpleasant conversation about why, you know, and, and, you know, the fact that, you know, they aren't taking little white kids away from their parents and doing that. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, and the look on his face as you could see him trying to wrap his head around that concept. And uh, it was just heartbreaking to me, you know, and that, that directly led to, you know, at least one, if not more, of the songs on the record. Mm-hmm. And some of the songs, and what you just played is not an example of that, but a lot of the songs take the form of really protest songs yeah. in a very old-fashioned way, which is it's something of a departure for you guys. Yeah, I guess. You know, we've always, I've always thought of our band as political and and mm-hmm. my songs as, as, as political, but, you know, so often it was like, done in the form of telling a story, often a story set in a different time and place, you know, mm-hmm. almost like the Chinatown, you know, the way the movie Chinatown used the 30s noir, you know, format to to tell, to talk about, you know, what was going on at that time in the 70s, you mm-hmm. know. Yeah. And uh, so, uh, so I always kind of took that approach, you know. I mean, I, I considered Southern Rock Opera to be a very a very political record, you know, mm-hmm. with all of the George Wallace stuff and all that. And, uh, uh, but, but starting with American Band, we've been, we made a kind of very conscious decision that the, that record and this last one are set right now. And there isn't, there isn't some story to, you know, necessarily, you know, ease the, <laughs> ease the, ease you into it. Mm-hmm. Um, we are going to get back to politics, but I do want to ask you just a bit about the making of the album itself. Uh, you went to Memphis for this. Yes. So tell me a little bit about that. We went to Sam Phillips Recording Service uh, studio that when, um, you know, of course, Sam, Sam's actually from our hometown. He, he, he grew up, he, he grew up two farms over from my grandmother. They're the same age mm-hmm. and they, they went to elementary school together even. Okay. And, uh, uh, you know, of course, he moved to Memphis and you know basically discovered rock and roll and and uh, Sun Studios and and Elvis and Carl Perkins and all of that and and uh, around 1960 or so when he sold Sun Records and the Sun Studios, he took his money and he built like his dream studio and mm. and that's the place where we recorded our record. It was like a time capsule from like 1962, basically, uh, with with some early 70s updates here or there and. Uh, uh, some amazing old tube gear and just uh, and those echo chambers he designed and built three different echo chambers of different sizes into the actual building right? and so we're like running our stuff through those echo chambers and really digging the way it sounded and kind of being inspired by it even. did it it change the the sound of this album from other albums i think it did i think i think a combination of that and just you know how the bands evolved too, because mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know, because uh, we've been, you know, we 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 haven't had any kind of a personnel lineup change or anything for about eight years now, and uh, and so this this incarnation of the band is just really really gelled in a way that I don't think we were ever able to quite uh, achieve before, because mm-hmm. in our more tumultuous earlier days, <laughs> uh, and I I heard. There was a celebrity sighting there. There was, yeah, yep. Um, Peter Grounick, who wrote the Sam Phillips book, came and visited us, and uh, and he had Mick Jagger with him. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but uh, did, did you talk to Mick Jagger there, or yeah, a little bit for for mm-hmm. a second, you know? And uh, um, we knew that Peter was coming, and uh, and of course, I'd read I'd read his Sam Phillips book. I've read probably all his books, and. Uh, and so I knew he was coming, and I was looking forward to, to meeting him or seeing him. I've met him before, uh, but seeing him again. But uh, and um, then when Mick Jagger stuck his head in, it was uh, a bit, it was it was a bit of a trip. <laughs> I'll bet. Uh, you know, the song you just played describes uh, sort of how uh, homogeneous sort of the American landscape is 
become. Right. But you guys grew up in a in a very particular part of Alabama. Now, when you say Alabama to most Northerners, they have a certain idea, and it's probably Birmingham or Mobile or right. football or oil or whatever it is. My cousin Vinny. Your cousin Vinny. Was that in Alabama? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, they're not thinking Emmy Lou Harris or, <laughs> you know, any of the people who are yeah. actually from there. What was what was that part of Alabama like growing up? I mean, when we were growing up, it was it was kind of isolated in a way because uh, there's no major highway through our town. Uh, there's a pretty major waterway through there as far as the Tennessee River. So there's a lot mm-hmm. of barges that floated through. But, you know, the closest airport of any size, you know, was at least two hours away and the interstate was an hour away. And, and, uh, we're kind of right between three cities, each about two to three hours away, Birmingham and Nashville and Memphis. We're kind of right Mm -hmm. in the middle of, of the, you know, of that triangle. But yeah, the Shoals area, it's four, four cities all that border each other. But I would describe the four of them collectively as a small town with a lot more people in it than you usually see in a small town, but it's still very much a big, small town. Right. Yeah. Uh, and it also, I mean, to the rest of the world, because of Muscle Shoals, where your father, Dave right. Hood, played for years and years on some of the greatest soul records ever. Right. Mick uh, Jagger came to his studio, too. Oh, did he? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I should hope so. But, uh, yeah, the you know, they the Stones recorded Brown Sugar and uh, Wild Horses, and, and uh, you got to move there. And, uh, uh, but, um, and at that time, I mean, it was a dry county, you know. It was, uh, when, I, when we were growing up, it was still a dry county. I was they, almost in high school before we had legal alcohol. Was that right? There. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh Wow. So it was a it junior was a, high must have been just rough. in time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they saw you coming. Yeah. They needed to raise some taxes. I always uh, say the best thing for, you know, for hard drinking teenagers to live in a dry county because the bootleggers don't care how old you are, you know. And mm-hmm. if you don't, and, you know, if you don't have legal liquor, then you're just going to have illegal liquor. I mean, it's no, it's not like you're going to keep anyone from doing what they want to mm-hmm. do. There's a certain image, you know, uh, musically at least, of kind of a racial harmony um, people associate with Muscle Shoals. Right. Um, this is a place that great soul records were made by, you know, biracial bands. And, well, I guess right. the band itself was mainly white. But yeah, they were, they the were artists. mainly white, at least at least dad's group. Some of the some of the later groups, it got a little more integrated. But, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, my, my, in the heart of the George Wallace era, my dad was making his living backing up Aretha Franklin and Wilson Pickett and Bobby Womack, and mm-hmm. Etta James, and, you know, all these amazing records that came out of there. Mm-hmm. And uh, and yet, you know, at, at times, especially in the earlier days, you know, I don't think some of the, you know, some of the African-American artists that were recording there were particularly comfortable going out and having dinner, mm-hmm. you know, in some of the restaurants there. I think it got, I mean, it wasn't nearly as bad there as like, what you see from like Birmingham and, and, you know, we, we didn't have Bull Connor and, you know, they weren't necessarily sicking police dogs on people, but it still was a closed minded, you know, Bible belt, religious. I, I used to uh, have to pass by, a, there was a, a radio station pretty much from where I lived to get to anywhere. Um, it was a black owned AM radio station. So the WZZA, the soul of the shoals. And, um, it uh, I, very often uh, it wasn't uncommon at all to pass by there and see that it had been vandalized again. You mm-hmm. know, um, some kind of racist epitaph spray painted on the door. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, you had both. You, you <laughs> <laughs> right. You had you had a little of both worlds. Yeah. yeah. And is it is it changed in a way that we'd recognize from the song you just played? Is it become more? commodified and big box and- I mean it's 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 kind of gotten cool in a way cuz they've you know when we were growing up like the whole music thing that was happening there was a secret. I mean, it was almost like a secret society. I mean, I learned really early on that I didn't go to school and talk about what my dad did. It was not something really? I was going to talk about at school. Because if if he and, were my uh, dad, that was literally all I would talk oh, about, even today. I mean, it's like I was I was like thirty before all of a sudden I realized, okay, I think it's okay for me to talk about my dad now. But but it was kind of like a it was almost like they were in a secret society because they were. I mean, they were afraid if they got too much attention, someone would try to stop 
stopped them from doing what they were doing, mm-hmm. you know. And but they knew if they just kind of stayed under the radar and you know and 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 donated money to the little league teams and and you know did 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 the you know the the nice community stuff that you know that they could do, they would generally get left alone to kind of do what they were doing. And, okay. Uh, okay. If there, if there, if there's a little league team sponsored by the Swampers, I want that. <laughs> I really, there was, there was. really want that there shirt. Was. Really? At yeah. one point there definitely was. We should explain Swampers yeah. was the name for the, right. what's also called the Muscle Shoal. A lot of that to section. attract a lot of the artists there too, especially the ones who were on the more famous mm-hmm. end of the spectrum at the time. Because I mean, Elton John could probably walk down the street there right now and not get recognized. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> and, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, the Rolling Stones stayed at the Holiday Inn right there, you know, right across the river from Muscle Shoals in Florence. And mm-hmm. uh, the first time they've been able to walk around in public in years at that point. Yeah. yeah. You know, Linda, Linda Ronstadt, legend has it Linda Ronstadt was the was the first girl to go sit at the counter at the pool room and order. They, uh, there's a pool room in Florence that had like uh, good chili burgers and stuff like that. And it was it was you know, kind of an unwritten law that it was men only. This would have been like 71 maybe when right. she recorded there. And uh, and she wanted to go to the pool room and shoot pool and uh, sit at the counter and did because Linda Ronstadt did what she wanted, you know. Right. And uh, she wasn't a big star yet, but she was already – she was already Linda Ronstadt, you know, <laughs> and wearing her cutoff, wearing her cutoff shorts, no less, you know, yeah. at the pool room, and uh, and you know they served her, and that was you know was a pretty pretty nice way f- to have change occur, but uh, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I mean now you know it's in some ways unrecognizable to me because it's 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 a kind of a cool town now. They've embraced their musical heritage, and you know we've got a you know we've got hipsters and a boutique. Hotel and a you know a, a fancy barber shop, yeah. and, you know, a barber <laughs> shop with guys in handlebar mustaches and their jeans rolled up. You yeah, know, okay, you know, it's 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 <laughs> all right. It's kind of crazy. So but, they've just turned it into Brooklyn. Is yeah. What you're telling? Yeah, me. Well, like to, damn yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. That's Brooklyn. Kind of is a big box store now. You just find sure. it all over the country. We'll be back with more of Bruce's interview with Mike Cooley and Patterson Hood of the Drive By Truckers after a quick break. Hey there, I'm Ashley Ford, host of the Chronicles of Now podcast. Chronicles of Now commissions amazing authors like Roxane Gay, Colin McCann, Carmen Maria Machado, and Curtis Sittenfield to write short fiction inspired by the headlines. Each episode features a new work of fiction inspired by the biggest stories of our time, like what does COVID-19 do to our relationships? How do we make sense of climate change and extinction? And perhaps most mysteriously, What is going on with Trump's tweets? Because in such uncertain times, sometimes art, fiction, is the only way to make sense of it all. The show is great for fans of short speculative fiction, historical novels, podcasts that go behind the news, and narrative shows like Radiolab and The Moth. The Chronicles of Now is imaginative storytelling at its most compelling. Authors helping us understand our world. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Brought to you by Pushkin Industries. We're back with Mike Cooley and Patterson Hood performing Grievance Merchants from their latest album, The Unraveling. There have been stores, lies, and airways. What makes the man a man's been right up front. Envisions boys are sold of what it could be. Grievance when it ain't like what they thought. When money and respect seem to elude him. And being white alone don't make the lady swoon. There's no shortage when it comes to hearing voices. Telling him it's him that's done unto They say his trouble with the ladies can't be his fault After all, he's what it's natural they should want 
There's just outside forces turning them against him A conspiracy to water down his blood A conspiracy to water down his blood And it's all the fault of it or them or they Give a boy a target for his greens And he might get it in his head they need to pay the check and bring and sleep at all the demonizing of the trouble-minded with all the usual suspects on the scene merchants selling young men reclamation merchants selling old men back their dreams all suspended disbelief and wishful thinking comes the of a special hail for cons who sell their marks the doubt it even happened an eternity for every tear they mock an eternity for every tear they mock may the price of freedom finally be their own may our thoughts and our prayers keep them company as they wallow in their helplessness alone That was Grievous Merchants. Yeah. Uh, can you tell me about the writing of that song? Um, I started thinking about everything that went into it. Uh, and after that, uh, the Parkland, Florida shooting that uh, mobilized those kids so much, I was pretty moved by what they were up to, you know. But uh, uh, the predictable reaction they got, um, being accused of... Uh, being less than sincere. They were called crisis actors. They were discredited, insulted, and made fun of. Um, and uh, I don't know if that particular shooter or not was one. I think he may have been, but there was a pattern um, of all these young men that were committing these acts, you know. Um, and every, whenever it was over and you'd get a look at their... Uh, at their laptops, their phones, what they had been looking at, uh, what they had been posting, liking on social media. It was kind of a who's who of the usual suspects. Um, maybe not the same names, but definitely the same message. Um, and that was that was what it all boiled down to to me, was this, this cottage industry whose product was grievance and victimhood um, to mostly young white guys, and maybe sometimes not so young. And um, it, at that time, uh, you know, that, that, uh, the, uh, that Alex Jones guy is probably the most household name of all of them. Um, I never went far enough down that rabbit hole to even know who most of the rest of the names are because I just don't want, you know, I don't want that stuff to start mm -hmm. popping up on my phone when I'm in public. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, but, yeah, it was, uh, they all seem to uh, have some kind of problem with women, they had uh, ex-girlfriends, ex-wives with restraining orders. They'd been arrested for stalking. They couldn't get the kind of attention from women they thought they deserved. Um, that they were, honestly, that they were, their whiteness was losing its value was the message that was constantly being pumped at them. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's not your fault. They're kind of, you know, sending them that message that, you know, it's not because you're socially awkward 
or because you inevitably open your mouth and say the wrong thing, or because you you know, it's got to be this. It's got to be this thing or that thing. This ism or that ism that's turning these people against you. And uh, and you know, you go far enough down it, and uh, you're you know, you've you've completely self radicalized, which a lot of these guys have. And you know, you I I just don't want you know I, I can't draw a line to people on uh, the internet or the TV or the radio saying something and somebody doing something. Of course not, but I'm not going to let them off the hook either. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them are true believers in what they're peddling and they're pure evil. And some are just con jobs who are in it for the attention, the money, and the ratings, and they're more than pure evil. Mm-hmm. Is there, uh, there's a wonderful line in that song, uh, conspiracy to is it dilute their blood? Yeah, or? yeah that's, well, that's, that's a, yeah. Uh, it's a great line, but it, it connects to that idea of lost hand, uh, manhood, mm-hmm. emasculation, mm-hmm. which is very much— Needing to see um, non-white men as uh, sexual predators mm-hmm. um, and, and, and how it's uh, in, in some grand conspiracy to uh, get white women to have fewer white babies. Yeah. I mean, they really do. That's really out there. That's re- literally what these people are feeding off. Do you think that connects to a bigger sense in the South of being looked down upon um, by the elites and, and, you know? That's always been part of it. I mean, yeah, definitely anti-elitism, anti-intellectualism, mm-hmm. um, uh, growing up around, you know, working class Southern white men, the, there was all a... a at men or who were more educated or more uh, successful, um, there was always that sense that he thinks he's better than I am, mm-hmm. and maybe some of them did. But he got above his raisin. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, maybe maybe some of them did. I'm sure some of them did. You know, or they they look at uh, academics and oh, they they don't they think they're so smart. Well, they kind of are, mm-hmm. um, but. You know, whether they are or not is not why that person thinks that. They're going to think that no matter what. And it's just a, it, there, there's definitely a, a blue collar chip on, on the shoulder. Well, it's all, you know, fear of the other is such a, you know, which has been a, a prevalent thing that our band has written about for years and years. It's been, that's been kind of an ongoing theme, you know, and, and, and our records kind of from that day one. But, uh, and um, and it's like there's always somebody to blame, some other that's that's taking what's rightfully mine or whatever, you know. And you know, and I mean, you know, our our current president, I mean, that's what that's how he got elected was capitalizing on that over and over and over and over. They're coming across the border to get your jobs and you know probably take your women too. You know, it's that whole. And now they've now they've morphed into these magic immigrants that can take your job and still not work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Never thought of it that way. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's interesting because you're from the South, you've written uh, quite a few songs where, for example, George Wallace appears. You guys grew up, I mean, Wallace was still probably governor at some, you oh, probably God. remember him as governor. He, he was governor into the 80s. Yeah. 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 I mean, he got elected his fourth term my freshman year in college. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. I mean, you and I, I don't remember the song, but I think you had a line, something to the effect that um, there's racism everywhere, but George Wallace gave it a Southern accent. I'm not remembering the phrase well, exactly. From then on, if you're going to have a racist in a movie, you're going to give him a Southern accent, flat out. It's just, it's like, uh, that's one of the ways that you establish the character of, of, of being a racist is you give him that accent. You know, yeah. there's but a James Bond like, movie, you know, live and let die. You know, the, 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 you know, they, they made sure to set, set it in Louisiana so that the, so that the, Cop could be a redneck cop, you know. Mm-hmm. They said it so. Uh, but is the flip side of that that if somebody has a southern accent, people then assume he's a racist? I mean, to some, some extent, some do. I'm yeah. sure, yeah. you know. And uh, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm sure that I'm sure there's been people who've never listened to our music that would just assume we're something that we probably aren't. You know, whether it's racist or just, you know, whatever, whatever you want to, whatever presumptions you want to make about Southerners in, in the South, you know, and, and, you know, it's like, I, I tell people a lot, you know, it's like Trump won Alabama by 60%, which is horrific. 
But that's still 40% that voted against him. That's still, you know, over a million people who feel as strongly opposed to this as as I do, you know, or as, you know, as someone in a different state does. It's just it's just a matter of how the demographics of the population, how it how it all settles. Mm-hmm. But given how polarized the times are now, uh, there is probably not the same audience for a sophisticated, nuanced take on certain kinds of characters. And I'm right. wondering, uh, another example is you, you had a song, I think it was Southern Thing. Right. Uh, where and, and you wrote about this in The Times, which is that people were, were bringing out Confederate flags. Yeah. And it made you uncomfortable. It was, hor- it was, hor- it was horrified. Yeah. So you stopped playing the song largely? Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, we, and we you, seldom pl- we'll occasionally play it, and even then, it's it's only in an environment where I feel comfortable with with knowing that the people I'm playing it for know they get it, they get where I'm coming from with it, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that song's ve- very rarely played. Are there other songs that have that are now in that category in the last few years because of changing politics? Things that you may have felt your intentions were right, but it just is not going to be heard in the same way? Probably. I can't think of any examples offhand, but but uh, but probably. I mean, you know, in in the case of that song, you know, I mean, I'm not sure I did a I'm not sure I did my job adequately in writing that song. I mean, it's got a, you know, it's got a really cool guitar lick. <laughs> and, it, it, <laughs> and it was always a crowd pleaser, you know, because it it it's a good rock song as far as musically on all of that maybe but uh, the point I was trying to make in writing it I'm not sure if I adequately made it the, the mere fact that it was so misunderstood always kind of made me question the actual writing of the song itself you know the the point I was trying to make maybe clumsily was uh that if you ask 10 southern people what you know, people always refer to this like the Southern thing. If you ask ten different Southerners what that is, you get ten very different answers, often that conflict with each other. Sometimes from the same person, you'll get different answers that conflict with each other. And Depends so, on what time of the day you ask them. Yeah, and so that song has a lot of has a lot of statements that people state as fact themselves personally in describing being a Southerner. That and and over the course of the song, there's all these other contradictory statements to that, and I think uh, I think I really maybe underestimated the how easily that could get misconstrued as as the song actually making those statements. You know, I didn't I didn't view it that way when I wrote it, and when I realized that kind of the hard way, you know, it was specifically a show we were playing at this festival, this outdoor festival. In Georgia, in Atlanta, and uh, we were actually on the same bill with Big Boy from uh, from Outcast. I'm a huge Outcast fan, and uh, and um, and there were people waving. The record was still pretty new then. There were people, you know, with with rebel flags, and uh, that like pull them out when that song comes on. And I was I was mortified, and it's like, wow, people think that's what I'm saying, and that's not. You know, mm. so so it's made me question the actual writing of the song. Oh, interesting. But you are part of the song is in it's in a character. Sure. And you sure. guys you guys write a lot of a, a lot, lot about kind of desperate characters, like characters sort of on the yeah. edge. And people sure. tend to not get that. Really? Right. Yeah. When, when anybody Newman does it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know it's, well, speaking of Randy Newman, Sail Away is not a song I think he'd be it, really comfortable about right. playing right now. It's an it's an amazing song. Yeah. Or or you know, or Rednecks, which is also an amazing song, you know, and uh but it's also, you know, a song that, you know, it, it it's polarizing even to people who do get it. You know, and I mean when we were writing what the record that became the Southern Rock Opera, we were we spent a lot of time listening to the Good Old Boys album by Randy Newman. To me, that was that was always the original Southern rock opera, you know. <laughs> and uh, it just, you know, I, I've always loved him doing that. His writing of how he can write from a point of view of a character who might be a, at times, a pretty dislikable character. And uh, I, I think that's a valid. I think that's a valid art form. But it is something 
particularly in these times, it's 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 a risk and uh, and sort of uh, you know I'm 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 still grappling with all of that. Is it is that a particular burden of Southern writers? I remember um, Flannery O'Connor at one point talked about uh, she was always asked why Southern writers always write about freaks. And her answer, and I'm, again, paraphrasing, was something to the effect that, well, there are freaks everywhere. We're just better at recognizing them. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And you guys write about people, you know, who are very sort of edgy characters. Um, Do you feel an extra duty to to somehow make them sympathetic to... Not necessarily. I don't think. I don't know. What I don't ever want to be is condescending to them, even if I disagree with them. I don't want to be condescending to them. I don't want to be, I want to at least try to write about it fairly and then let the listener make up their own mind as to where they land about that, which right now in this damn current climate in itself, that is even a risk, you know, and maybe it always was. Maybe I was naive to it, you know, because I, I, that certainly could be possible too. Right. But, uh, I want to be. I want to. I want to be true to what I'm writing about, though. Whether 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 I personally agree or not. I mean, you know, I I had a I had a very different upbringing than most of the people I know from where I'm from. You mm-hmm. know, but but I don't necessarily you know need to impose that on all the characters I write about. When we come back, we'll pick back up with Bruce's discussion with Patterson Hood and Mike Cooley. And if you want to hear more about Randy Newman's Good Old Boys album check out episode four of season four of Malcolm Gladwell's other podcast, Revisionist History. More after this. We're back with Mike Cooley and Patterson Hood. Before playing the trucker's new song, Thoughts and Prayers, Patterson talks about what inspired him to write this song. This one's not really in a character, I don't guess, but it's, uh, I mean, again, it was inspired by, you know, the stuff going on, you know, the shootings and 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 all of that, you know, and and again, talking to my kids about it and everything. But uh, um, this song's called "Thoughts and Prayers." When the carnage was over, you could hear the cell phones ringing. You could smell gunpowder in the air And on the bloody ground The LEDs were blinking Deliver us from evil thoughts and prayers They're lined up on the playground Their hands are in the air See it on our news feed and we cry out in despair They're counting up the casualties, everyone's keeping score There's always someone to blame, nowhere to hide anymore Thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers noise in my head I think I need a filter pressure valve to keep from blowing up and when the shit comes down I hope I can rise above it hold me closer when I've had enough thoughts and prayers thoughts and prayers glory hallelujah you are in thoughts and prayers glory hallelujah you are in our thoughts and prayers Skies, the curve of the horizon 
eyes look at me and they ask me to explain it breaks my heart to have to look away the powers that be are in for shame and comeuppance when generation lockdown has their day they'll throw the bums all out and drain the swamp for real perp walk them down the capitol steps show them how it feels tramp the dirt down jesus you may pray the rod will spare stick it up your ass with your useless thoughts and prayers stick it up your ass with your useless thoughts and prayers You told you explained a little bit where the song came from, but I need to ask you where one particular part of that song came from, mm-hmm. which is the just beautiful image of the the flat earther, earthist, I guess, right? Uh, realizing he's the earth is around just before he hits the ground. You remember where did a couple that come years from? ago when uh, like some guy like went way up high? It was like some kind of a flat earth thing. It was a guy like like launched himself and really nearly, no i didn't know yeah. that. it was like it was it was in the news right around the time that i wrote the song and and just at that perfect moment when i came to that part of the it was time to like write a bridge for the song it popped in my head then uh it just kind of um you know i got lucky <laughs> <laughs> you got very lucky yeah. that's uh that must be the NASA influence in yeah. northern Alabama. <laughs> yeah, putting people on the moon. Yeah. Uh, but it weirdly, which you've also written about, it makes it a strangely optimistic song. As angry as that song may sound to people, you know, after that, I'm not sure if it's a chorus or a verse, you actually talk about people finding a solution right. to all this. Are you, uh, are you actually optimistic uh, at this point? <sighs> I'm trying. On that particular issue or on any particular issue? Um. I'm trying. It's a work in progress. I'm I'm trying. You know, I, I do I do get a lot of optimism from the young people I'm around, and because uh, I'm I'm getting old, and uh, but I'm around a lot of young people, probably a lot more than people my age normally are, because because I've I've got still have small kids. I'm around a lot of their friends. You know, our house is kind of that house that that a lot of the my kids' friends feel happy congregating at, and uh, and uh, our band's on the road. We meet people all over the country, but we also, our crew is all these, you know, guys in their 20s who mm-hmm. are, are amazing, you know, and, uh, and, um, and I get, so I get, I get a lot of optimism out of, out of that, and, uh, or what optimism I can hang on to, I guess, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I've always thought of myself as a as an optimistic person, even if I was kind of cynical and and maybe sometimes pragmatic about it. I've I've always I've always I've always felt like I had an undercurrent of that, and that was that's been a that's been a real issue the last few years because it's taken a real hard beating after you know with everything that's been going on and uh, hanging on to that's been. Sometimes I feel like I'm hanging on to it for dear life, like like a life raft, even. And uh, and um, but I'm I'm still hanging on to it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Is it important to you that your music and your shows reflect that? I would like it to, but mm-hmm. I don't want again. I don't want to be dishonest about it, you know. And so I mean, you know, it's definitely an underlying theme. I think in in 
in this record is the trying to hang on to that. And because, uh, 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 you know, I think that I think the act of going to a rock show is a cathartic can be a really cathartic, uplifting, wonderful thing. You know, I think, you know, I think I get from going to rock shows probably what some people would get would get from going to church or whatever. You know, it, it's always been sort of that that thing for me like that. And and I would love for it to be have that experience for the people who come to see us play. And uh, you know, I want it to be fun and 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 there to be some some bit of uplift to it but you know at the same time i'm you know it's these are tough times which makes us need it more than ever in a lot of ways mm-hmm. thank you so much the songs are just beautiful it was, it was just, pleasure. Thanks. it was lovely hearing them just with the two guitars please don't say that to the rest of the band <laughs> um it was great thank you very much Thanks to Mike Cooley and Patterson Hood from the Drive-By Truckers for talking to Bruce and for playing songs from the new album, Ben Raveling. The album's out now, so be sure to check it out along with the rest of their catalog. And if you're in need for a Drive-By Truckers primer, check out our favorite songs and a playlist we made on brokenrecordpodcast.com. Broken Record is produced with help from Jason Gambrell, Milo Bell, Leah Rose, Matt Laboza, and Martin Gonzalez for Pushkin Industries. Our theme music's by Candy Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Thanks for listening.